the Holy Spirit not only set his heart on recovering all that had been lost in Chronicles, but how he actually recovered it. Not only how he purposed and determined to recover it, but how in actual fact he did recover it. And I want to remind you this evening that really, with the end of the book of Nehemiah, the whole scene is set for the coming of the Messiah. The conditions are fulfilled, the people are in the land, the city is being rebuilt, uh, the house of God is functioning, everything is now prepared. And as far as sacred history goes, the, uh, it's, it's the end. As far as sacred history goes, the next thing is the Messiah. The next thing is the birth of Jesus. We have to underline that because, you see, the Holy Spirit, in a wonderful way, has now placed the book of Esther after Ezra and Nehemiah, although, in one sense, it does not belong there. And we have got to uh, recognize why the Holy Spirit has placed it, we shall see that in a moment, why the Holy Spirit has placed it where he has placed it now, in the scriptures. You will remember that even if it's only a faithful, a faithful and afflicted remnant that have returned, that faithful and afflicted remnant have given God the conditions and the means which he requires to fulfill all his age-long promises and purpose concerning his Son and a people for himself. And we have learned that if God's purpose seems to be submerged beneath error and ignorance and contradiction and compromise, it is not too great a task for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit only has to have a nucleus that are abandoned to him, and all that seems so impossible melts away. All that seems to be just absolutely an impossible, insoluble, invincible barrier to the Lord getting the conditions he requires for the coming of the Messiah, or for getting the means that he requires for the coming of the Messiah, although it may all seem so impossible uh, and improbable, the Holy Spirit is sufficient. And that really is the simple lesson of Ezra Nehemiah. With that we close last week. And later on when we come to the prophecies, the prophets, and we begin to fit them in to this background that we've already built, we shall begin to understand their ministry. Zechariah's great ministry, remember when he continually talked about this great plain becoming, uh, uh, this great mountain becoming a plain, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, and so on, all begins to take a new meaning gives us a new insight into uh, what the Lord wants to do in our own day and generation. The wonderful thing that we can write over Ezra and Nehemiah is simply this. The last word is always God. And if you forget everything else, you might remember this, that the last word is always so sometimes when we look at the state of the church today, and we know the conditions that the Lord wants and needs and requires for the coming again of the Lord Jesus, the means that he wants for the coming again of the Lord Jesus, whilst it all may seem to be so impossible and so improbable, so insuperable, yet with the Holy Spirit there is not one single thing that can stand in the way. Now we come to the book of Esther. Esther is one of the, of the only two books in the Bible that bear the name of a woman, which in itself makes it remarkable. The other book is Ruth, the book of Ruth. And I think it, and I trust most of you have read Esther, because you won't find it difficult if once you set yourself to the task, you will find it uh, an exceedingly fascinating little book, uh, it's quite dramatic, 
Uh, it's quite, without being irreverent, it's almost like a thriller uh, when once you get into it, uh, into this little book of Esther. You will be immediately arrested <coughs> by the complete difference of atmosphere and of surroundings and of everything in the little book of Esther. I think you'll be very much arrested by its vital and direct style. It, has a, it doesn't waste words. The little book of Esther wastes no words. There's no repetition. Uh, there's nothing of that kind at all. It's very direct and it's vital in its style. You'll also notice that it is a book that differs almost completely from all the other books of the Old Testament in its atmosphere. The atmosphere of the book of Esther is quite different from the other books of the Old Testament, particularly of the whole Bible in actual fact but particularly of the Old Testament. I think you'll only have to read that to, to see that you're in a different atmosphere. Somehow the, the very smell of the thing is different. The, the, the atmosphere, everything about it, uh, is, is somehow different. It's it, in a category almost all of its own. It is the one book in the Old Testament that is thoroughly Gentile, in its atmosphere. That is why. All the other books of the Old Testament are uh, uh, in the atmosphere of the people of God, always. But this book of Esther is a book that is thoroughly Gentile in atmosphere. Um, everything in, it, in the book is Gentile. The customs are Gentile. You don't find any Jewish customs. The phraseology of the book is Gentile. It is the one book of the, uh, of the Old Testament, which we'll find out in a few moments, that has more Persian words and phrases, more, shall we say, Gentile words and phrases, than any other book. Uh, it is completely Persianized. Uh, uh, better, shall we say, a Gentile atmosphere, Gentile wording and phraseology, Gentile customs. The whole book, is Gentile to the point of shunning the things of God. Esther is a remarkable book. Um, I think this evening I'm going to, I'm afraid, be rather brutal in our whole uh, our whole method um, in study this evening. Uh, I think we shall find that the book of, of, of Esther is anything to what the normal conception of it is. Um, many people love the little book of Esther, they think it's a very wonderful little book, so it is a wonderful little book. But it's a, it's a wonderful little book, for, in my estimation, for a very different reason from what most people think it's wonderful for. The plain matter of the fact is this. It is thoroughly Gentile. Thoroughly Gentile. Right down to the minutest detail, it is thoroughly Gentile. Even its language is not the language of the people of God. Its very language is the language of the unsaved. Its customs are the customs of the unsaved. Its atmosphere is the atmosphere of this world. If we can get that, we are beginning immediately to get to the heart of this book. It goes so far that you almost would think that the things of God are in disrepute. You would hardly, you would, you would think that for some reason or other there were no such things uh, as the city of God, the house of God, the land of God, the people of God, the word of God, and so on. If we had only the book of Esther to go by, we would know nothing. We would know that there was a law. We would know that God had spoken. We would know that there was a promised land. We wouldn't know that there was a city except for one little mention that some hundred years before someone uh, called Ki uh, someone who was the son of Kish had been carried away captive from Jerusalem. That's the only reference to Jerusalem in the whole book. We wouldn't know it. So we understand at the very beginning that this book is thoroughly Gentile. And it was on account of its Gentile atmosphere and particularly its Gentile phraseology that its uh, genuineness, its place in the canon of the scriptures has been questioned again 
and again and again and again. The rabbis, the more thoughtful rabbis, not by any means the popular ones, I shall say something about that in a moment, but the more thoughtful and scholarly and deeper-sighted rabbis continually wrestled with this problem of Esther. What was this book doing in the canon of Scripture? It denied everything that the Jew had stood for. It seemed to get right to the heart of, of the uh, of the problem in the wrong way. It seemed to uh, bless the very things that the rest of the law and of the prophets had so violently condemned. And therefore you find that the rabbis, those more deeply cited ones and more studios, have always wrestled with the problem, what is the book of Esther doing in the canon of Scripture? What is she doing there? Why is she there? Why has she been afforded such a place? That's one side. But the other side is rather amusing. Esther, by popular esteem and acclaim, has had the highest place in the Jewish heart that anyone has ever had. The most remarkable thing. It's not merely that she was accounted by the Jewish people and the popular rabbis to be the third, one of the three most beautiful women that ever lived in the world. I don't think it was just that fact that everyone loved the beautiful uh, woman. Uh, but it was more, I think, the fact that somehow or other, this history, this story, that's contained in the book of Esther, has answered something in the hearts of the people of God in a very remarkable way. It's a remarkable thing, the esteem that the book of Esther is held in to this day by the Jews. The last chapters of the book of Esther tell us of a feast of Purim, which just means the feast of love, which has forever after commemorated the events of this story. And though at times in Jewish history, right up to recent years, other feasts have been forgotten, the feast of Purim has never been forgotten but has always from that day to this been meticulously observed by the Jewish people. It's not only that they have meticulously observed the feast that commemorates the story in the book of Esther, but there are many, there are many remarkable stories uh, that the Jewish people uh, have um, about Esther, the book of Esther. For instance, it's commonly believed, was commonly believed, and is still commonly believed, that in the days of the Messiah, the only two things that will remain will be the law and the book of Esther. Everything else will be put on one side. But the law, that is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and the book of Esther will remain throughout the days of the Messiah. Only a small tradition amongst the Jews, but a remarkable one. Another interesting thing is this, that this book of Esther in the Hebrew scriptures had its place in the third section, which is the writing. There are the law, the prophets, and the writing. And the little book of Esther is in a subsection of that division, the writing, or the ketubim, which we call the five roles. And the book of Esther is the principal one of those five roles. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, uh, Esther, Ruth, but the principle of those five is Esther. Indeed, it was known as the roles. When anyone spoke of the roles, they spoke of them as the roles, and they meant Esther. Now, why on earth had the little book of Esther such esteem uh, uh, amongst the people of God? It's interesting, isn't it? I think it is even more instructive to note the way in which the Holy Spirit has taken it away from that section. And in the Bible that we now have under the government of the Holy Spirit, we have it now as the last word of sacred history. Isn't that interesting? The last word of sacred history. It has been removed from its position in the writings and placed at the very end of what we call the historical books 
of the Old Testament. It is the final word. It does not chronologically belong there. If we were to try and fit it in anywhere chronologically, we would have to try and either put it before the book of Ezra or after the book of Ezra. Because in actual fact, chronologically, it comes halfway into the book of Ezra. But it has been put at the end of the book of Nehemiah. And it is the last word in Old Testament history. I think we can say that we have already seen something of God's ways <coughs> with those that return to the land. We have seen something of God's dealings with them. But what about the people, the vast majority, who remained in exile and remained happily in exile? How did the Lord deal with them? How did he reveal himself to them? What were his methods with them? Did he give them up? Did he forsake them? Did he refuse to have anything to do with them? What was the Lord's attitude to the vast majority of his people who never went back to the land? Who never got uh, back to the place where God's name dwelt, but remained happily and prosperously uh, in the, in, amongst the Jews of the dispersion? Now, the little book of Esther <coughs> deals with that. The people of God who remain. God's dealing with those of his people who remain in it. That's the, um, the purpose of the little book of, of Esther. It reveals God's dealings, God's ways, God's method, God's attitude to those that remained in exile. 23 chapters, and I'm not being sarcastic, 23 chapters are given to the little tiny remnant of some 60,000 souls who return to the land. But of the countless thousands, running more, of course, into millions, that remained in exile, we have only 10 chapters. 23 chapters, Ezra and Nehemiah, given to those that returned, and 10 chapters to the vast majority who remained. I would like to say before, and of course this evening, we're going to deal with the technical side. We're going to take two evenings over this, the Lord willing. Um, this evening we will take the technical side and lay a foundation, a thorough foundation, for anything that we might say upon the book itself. Uh, and then next week we will deal with the spiritual lesson. We shall find some spiritual lessons, quite a number of them actually tonight, but we will be dealing primarily with the technical side. <coughs> but there is one thing I would like to say, and that is this. Esther is a great corrective of the Holy Spirit to those people on the one hand who are given to narrow prejudices and dogma and who in their mind restrict God to the realm in which they are and to the ground upon which they find themselves and refuse to believe that God can be found anywhere else but where they are can only bless people where they are, can only use people where they are, and can only meet with people where they are. It is a tremendous corrective to that narrow, earthly, natural attitude of so many of us that if somehow or other other of the Lord's people don't see eye to eye to, with us, then the Lord can't be with them. He can't be born. And many Christians, their greatest problem is, how does the Lord bless that? How does the Lord bless that? And you get all kinds of weird uh, propositions put forward. I mean, uh, some people will absolutely swear that the Lord could never be found amongst Roman Catholics. And you couldn't possibly find a child of God amongst the Roman, amongst the Roman Catholics. You will find others that will tell you that it is not possible for the Holy Spirit to use Jehovah's Witness, who, in actual fact, virtual fact, is a heretic. And yet we have proof, we can give you proof, that the Lord is found sometimes in such amazing realms. 
and to news the most amazing things. But do you see what I'm getting at? We have such little minds. We have such a small capacity somehow that we, we, we just conceive. We cannot conceive of the Lord being able to bless or use or meet with anyone unless they see the same that we have seen. If the Lord revealed this to me, then it must be true. Therefore, what about all these others the Lord hasn't revealed it to? Uh, how can he bless them? How can he meet them? How can he save others through them? If this is the truth, surely the Lord should be narrow. He should cut them all off. <coughs> you see? And give himself only to those who, who are prepared to go right on with him. Now, the book of Esther is the corrective of the Holy Spirit against that kind of natural mentality. On the one hand, and on the other hand, it is a great corrective to those people who are who have that sentimental looseness and that insensitive non-discern. <coughs> you know that kind of thing? They would be prepared to be involved with anything which has been blessed. So then, so long as they're not blessing it, that's all right. Let's get in. Let's get on on uh, the wagon sort of thing. If the Lord's blessing it, then, then it must be all right. <coughs> you hear people say it again and again. Of course, they draw the line, most of them will draw the line when it comes to some things. But uh, generally speaking, their attitude is, oh, well, if there's this blessing, then we're prepared to be involved. The Lord must be there. See, there's no there is absolutely no understanding that the blessing of the Lord does not mean the committal of the Lord. There is no understanding of the book of Esther. This little book of Esther is a great corrective on the one side to those of us who cannot believe the Lord could be with anyone else except on this ground that we find ourselves on. Or on the other hand, a great corrective to those who believe in that kind of sentimental looseness. So let's, let's be involved with anyone that, uh, that, that the Lord's blessing or uh, have got a few aspects that are, are like ourselves. They're the, they're the children of God, aren't they? Aren't they the children of God? Aren't they, aren't they praying? Aren't they sort of uh, our flesh and blood sort of business? Well, that's the book of Esther. <coughs> well, there we are. I might say one other thing, and then we'll go straight on to the authorship and the date. Uh, Esther is one of the very few books of the Old Testament that is not quoted once in the news. You can think about that. Esther is one of the very few, the only, uh, uh, literally one of the few, that are uh, not quoted in the New Testament. Now, what about the authorship and the date? Well, some of the technical points. We have nothing internal or external that gives us a single clue to the authorship of the book of Esther. Whoever wrote it was minutely familiar with Persian customs, with Persian life, with Persian court life. Whoever wrote it was, uh, was obviously someone who lived in Persia because of their command of Persian phraseology. They have used um, a Hebrew which is thoroughly Persian. Uh, that's all we, all we can say about it. It's someone who obviously not only lived in Persia, but has imbibed the very spirit of Persia. Now that's very important. We can also say one or two things about suggestion. Um, one suggestion that has been made from the very earliest days was that Mordecai himself was the author of the book of Esther. This has been made from the very, very earliest days. The earliest church fathers said that they thought it was Mordecai, and before that some uh, of the greater rabbis thought it was Mordecai. The Talmud, on the other hand, has attributed the authorship of the book of Esther to the great synagogue under the leadership of Ezra. Now, today, it is very common amongst um, Bible scholars to throw overboard both suggestions. Um, until recently, um, they, most uh, biblical scholarship, 
most biblical scholars felt that the date of the book of Esther was a very late one. Um, that they felt that it was written because of its style and its language some considerable time after the events that it described took place. But now, we, more recently, there has been a renewal of interest as to whether, in actual fact, the book of Esther was written uh, at the time that the events uh, described took place or just afterwards. There are one or two reasons for this. One thing we can say most definitely, I think, this evening, we won't get very far on this question of authorship, really, or... Uh, date, but there are some very interesting points which we wish to make because we're going to draw some lessons out from them later on. Uh, Esther, as we have said again and again already this evening, is much more Persian than Jewish. The book, that is. Of course, Esther herself, I think, was more Persian than Jewish uh, in many ways, that we shall also see. There can be little doubt that the book of Esther was originally a Persian document in the Royal Archive. That is the latest, and I think, the most satisfactory of all the theories that have so far been expressed concerning the sources of the Book of Esther. It would explain a lot of things. Uh, it would explain its, <coughs> its Persian phraseology. It would explain uh, the fact that the things of God are never once mentioned anywhere within it. There are some very, very interesting points which I don't feel we can stay with this evening. But it would seem that in its earliest form, if not in the form that we have it now, it was a Persian document from the royal archives of the Persian Empire. Now, this could argue in favour of Mordecai's authorship. Because if you look at the very last chapter of the book of Esther, you will find that Mordecai was next to the king. Furthermore, it would be somewhat in keeping with Mordecai's character, both naturally and spiritually, I am afraid. For if you remember, it was Mordecai who counselled Esther not to let on that she was a Jewess under any circumstances. Now, you know what that meant? It meant that Esther had to eat things forbidden in the law of God. It meant, in other words, that she had to run contrary to all the law of God concerning the people of God. We shall see a little bit more about that later, about both Mordecai and Esther. But you see, dear Mordecai, it would seem to be somewhat in keeping with his character if when he came, if it was him, if he came being in charge of the administration of the empire, being next to the king in great place, he came to write up the record of uh, Haman's uh, execution, Haman's ten sons' execution, and also the very real retribution taken out upon all the people throughout the land, which ran into thousands and thousands and thousands of people by the Jews. If Mordecai, I felt that it would be wiser not to bring the name of God into it, nor the word God into it, nor the things of God into it, nor Jerusalem into it, nor the house of God into it, nor the city of Noah but very carefully expunged from the record anything that could possibly uh, uh, give outwardly at any rate the glory to God. Well, there you are. I have my own little feeling I would like to mention, but please don't take it as anything else. I really wonder whether that may not be the key to the book of Esther. Something in me just somehow feels that it may well be the key to the book of Esther. Mordecai may have been behind it. And I would not be the least bit surprised if the Jewish tradition <coughs> that it found its, its source, it, it was compiled in its present form under the leadership of Ezra and the great synagogue back in the land, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. Whether it was not worked over by Ezra, this would also explain why in some ways, though so Gentile, it has a style reminiscent of Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. You see... Um, most of you probably don't know, but there's a terrific row raged for years over Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, particularly, there was a question of Esther's um, data compilation and where it was. You see, modernists have always adamantly, until recently, 
said that Esther was a complete fake. The whole thing was rubbish. It was just a lovely, pretty story um, uh, of Jewish patriotism. Uh, of course, now, more recently, the whole thing has changed in due to archaeological discoveries and much else. But you see, it's interesting uh, that the two sides now taken on this. On the one side, you have those who say, ah, oh, but, but look at its style. Though it's Gentile, it's so like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And most do agree that those three, that threefold work, is the, the work of one hand. And then on the other side, you have those who try to make out that because it is so Persian, uh, it's probably an unknown Persian scribe uh, who actually uh, wrote the story, which explains why we, find, we don't find the Lord's name in it. We can fix the date for the actual uh, story, not for the compilation of it, but we can fix the date for the actual story, because it took place between the 6th and the 7th chapter of Ezra. We are almost absolutely certain about that. That is, between the 1st and the 2nd stages of the return to the land, the little book of Ezra, the story that is contained there, described there, took place. There were something like 60 to 70 years between the 1st and the 2nd stage of the return to the land, and it was during that period that uh, the story described here took place. It was in the reign of the famous Xerxes. In, in, here in Hebrew, we have the name Ahasuerus. Again, there is discussion whether Ahasuerus is a title or a very poor Hebrew transliteration of the name Xerxes. He was the uh, famous, one of the famous, most famous of the Persian uh, kings. We shall say a little bit more about him in a moment. Esther begins in the third year of, of, of Xerxes' reign. That is uh, the year in which he deposed Queen Vashti. Then he married Esther in the seventh year of his reign. In between the third and the seventh year, he was on a great Greek expedition, which very tragically, uh, uh, in which he was very tragically defeated. He came back to marry Esther. That's at least simply uh, something of the background. The book of Esther covers a period of 20 years approximately. There is very little real indication of the date of its compilation. As I have already said, the language used suggests that it could, be, uh, could have been written much later than the events which it describes. Yet there is so much detail within the work that would suggest someone contemporary with the events described. For instance, Ahasuerus's chamberlain, all seven of them, unpronounceable names given, which would seem to be just a little bit odd uh, a century or two later, and Haman's ten sons, all names being given, and many other minute details, which would seem to be that of an eyewitness at least. So uh, we have that problem again. Now, what about the background? I'm going to move on as quickly as I can now. What about the background of this book? I hope you don't mind us spending just a few minutes on the background of the book. I think it will shock everyone probably a little, but I think all to the good if we could knock some of the silly ideas and conceptions of the Book of Esther uh, out of the picture. Um, exactly who was Ahasuerus or uh, better Xerxes? He was one of the greatest of the Persian kings. History tells us that he was proud, he was self-willed, he was arrogant, he was wanton. At times he could be very merciful, very kind, and very loving. He was known through the whole length of his empire for his amorous nature, which we, we, we need to underline. That side of him, I'm afraid, has, of course, as always, been taken up very greatly in folklore, much else. Xerxes was famous. On the one side, because he was a true symbol of the Eastern despot, an absolute potentate who could uh, do anything at will. He was taken up because he was a famous soldier. He won the Punjab and the Sindh, 
for Persia. He brought it within the empire. He was the one who conquered the most of Ethiopia. He brought the Mediterranean islands into the Persian empire. But, of course, when he came at last to his great expedition against Greece, that he confidently thought he was going to win, and therefore Greece also would have been in the net. You remember the great uh, prophecy of Daniel concerning Persia and Greece came to pass according to the word of the Lord over these two great empires. Little Greece beginning for the first time to emerge into a great, great power and civilization. Persia and Greece clash under the leadership of Xerxes. It was this great expedition that he planned in the third year of his reign. He had a vast fleet. Um, uh, how much, I don't know how much you all know about that, but he had a great navy, of which actually he was very proud, because in many ways Persia was for, for the most part inland. He lost nearly the whole of his navy at the Battle of Salamis, uh, which turned the tables forever against Persia. A little later, he lost nearly the whole of his army. So the reports, although they're sometimes exaggerated, they're not in the scriptures, 2,500,000 men were in his army when they met the Greeks. And although he didn't lose his army, his army was badly crippled. So in the seventh year of his reign, for the first time in his life, he was a defeated man. And he returned home to lose himself in home and domestic matters. He reigned from 486 to 465 BC. Um, it has never been clearly established whether Esther was the queen or a queen. And I think this is one of the things that might shock everyone, but I think it's just as well everyone knows. Um, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, was known to have had a number of wives. He had a vast number of concubines. To this day, we are still not sure whether Queen Vashti was the queen or whether she was the favourite concubine. Whether Esther took the place of the favourite concubine or whether in actual fact she took the place of the queen. If, according, and I'm now speaking from secular history uh, in this background and not from the scripture, if as the scripture says, she became the queen, we still have today some unsolved problems. For if Vashti is the queen uh, that we know under another name, who was the queen consort from the beginning to the end of Xerxes' uh, life, then we can only suppose that she was deposed for a while and Esther made queen in her place. So you see, we still have some problems uh, about the queenship of Esther. I personally prefer to believe the scriptures because generally, and not generally, but in every case so far, the scriptures have been absolutely vindicated in the end to be thoroughly, historically accurate. There is no suggestion that she was a queen, but the queen with the royal crown given to her. However, I feel that you ought to know at least something of the difficulties in that, on that side. What we can say is this, that Xerxes was known to be exceedingly am amorous and by no means confined uh, his feelings uh, to uh, a queen. Uh, that, I think, we ought to make abundantly clear. Vashti, on the other hand, was known to be a very cruel and profligate woman. Most people, and in all our Sunday school books, it's always, we're always told that poor Vashti was asked to do something that she should never have been asked to do, something base, something evil. She was asked to, to come into the presence of these drunken nobles and the king with an unveiled face. But in actual fact, it was the custom in the drinking parties of the royal house of Persia to have their wives present. So it was not quite such an indecent thing, as is supposed. Uh, far from it, it was an affront by the queen uh, publicly uh, to the king when she refused, when asked, to go uh, to, uh, to be with him.
That we also need to make clear. When uh, this, in the third year of Xerxes' reign, he called a great general conference. All the nobles of his 127 provinces, all the leaders, the governors, the princes and the nobles, were gathered together at Shushan, the winter palace, uh, for, for a general conference which lasted quite some months to plan the expedition against Greece. There's no doubt about it that Xerxes was a great soldier and a great strategist. And he planned with his generals and nobles and West the, the very carefully and minutely the expedition against Greece. It was at the end of that time when they had uh, um, a sort of general end of conference uh, feast that Va Queen Vashti was asked to appear and publicly affronted the king in front of all his um, uh, governors, nobles, and the rest. And you know the story how from there on how it became a government matter and how Vashti was dealt with. Uh, when he went against uh, the Greeks, he was away evidently rather upset and annoyed for quite some years. At last, he returned. In the book of Esther, we don't find much of that. But it was in the seventh year of his reign that he married Esther. And it is generally believed, and of course it's most obvious uh, from all accounts, that um, when he lost the um, campaign, when he was defeated, the campaign against Greece failed and collapsed, he returned to uh, uh, Shushan, to uh, the palace, to lose himself in matrimonial matters. Uh, that's quite clear from the long, drawn-out business that went on. I mean, I'm not being funny when I say that really all it was was an ancient beauty. All the young ladies of the whole land, were, all the beautiful ones, were asked to come, and there was a little general beauty contest until one by one they were knocked out or uh, <laughs> uh, came into a, a section where at last one was chosen. If you read it carefully, you'll see it lasted six months to a year, it was a very carefully planned thing, and, uh, well, all one can say was that Xerxes was a defeated man and didn't like it, so he turned his mind to other things. The story we have in Esther took place in the palace at Shushan, which was the winter uh, palace, as far as we know, one of the three capitals of the Persian Empire. Um, that, I think, really is all that we need to say about the background. There's a lot there. Later on, we shall, we shall look at one or two other things next week when we actually take the story. We shall see that there are quite a few other things in it. That's the background. That's the man that we call Ahasuerus. Uh, and that's something about the background, as far as we know through secular history, of the atmosphere that surrounded Esther. I think you will all agree that this is not an atmosphere that one would have thought the Lord would have chosen for his children. I don't think any of us would for one moment think that the Lord meant us to be party to all that, really, or in many ways to be involved in it. Yet the amazing story of the book of Esther shows us that God allowed and indeed arranged for some of his people to become intimately linked and involved in these very things in order that he might meet them, that he might deliver them, and that he might use them. We shall say about a little bit more about that in a moment. Now what about the key to this book? What is the key to this book of Esther? We, really, we are, we've got a problem here when we come to this key, how to put it in a few words. Sometimes we can put in one word the key to a book. Other times we can't put it into a word at all. It needs quite a paragraph uh, to be able to put into one word the key to a little book. It's only a little book, but how difficult it is to find a word that will uh, uh, describe it. Let's look at some of the facts, and then we might find the key. What are the facts? <clears throat> the facts are these. The word God never appears once in the whole ten chapters of the book of Esther. The name of God, Jehovah, never appears once. The promised land is never referred to once. It's not even implied in any statement. 
The city of God is mentioned only once uh, in, a, uh, a, um, in a reference, back a uh, hundred years back. That's all. And then it's not mentioned as the city of God or anything else, it's just called Jerusalem. The house of God is never once mentioned or implied. The word of God, and this is the staggering the word of God is never at any single point in the whole of this book mentioned. The Septuagint translators, the translators of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, were so embarrassed by this silence on all the things they held dear, particularly they were Jews of the dispersion anyway, that they elaborated on it for sure. And the result is that in the Septuagint version, you have numerous references to the Lord, to God, and to other things. In fact, they added quite a few chapters to the book of Esther to try and get over their very real embarrassment over the simple thing that there wasn't a single reference anywhere to the things of God in this book. Now, on the other hand, listen to this. In these ten chapters, and by the way, they're small chapters, in these ten short chapters, the Persian king is, is referred to 192 times. The Persian kingdom is referred to 26 times. And the personal name of the Persian king is given 29 times. That's on the other side. I want you also to mark the amazing difference between Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. On the one side, you've got Ezra and Nehemiah. Now listen to these differences, because they are truly remarkable when you have them pointed out to you. In Ezra and Nehemiah, everything centers in the city of God. Everything. The whole of those 23 chapters are found in the end to be summed up in the walls being built around the city. The very house cannot be built anywhere else but on this ground called Jerusalem. Nowhere else. When you come to Esther, do you know what is mentioned all the time? Shushan. Shushan takes the place of the city of God. Everything centers in Shushan. All the story takes place in Shushan. That's one thing. Another thing is this. In Ezra and Yamaha, you know as well as I do, without appearing to be irreverent, you almost become tired of the repetition of the name of the Lord. The Lord. The Lord. The Lord. The Lord. Everything is the Lord. Nehemiah can't open his mouth without appealing to the Lord. Ezra can't open his mouth without appealing to the Lord. Everything is the Lord. Everything is to the Lord. Everything is before the Lord. Everything depends on the Lord. It's all the Lord. In Esther, it's all the, the, the king. It's all Ahasuerus. The Lord's not there. You don't have it. In Ezra and Nehemiah, the word of God is taught carefully. Now, I don't mean it's just preached. I mean taught. The people are instructed carefully in the meaning of their history and in the real meaning of the word of God and the law of God. You see? In the book of Esther, you don't get anything at all. Nowhere, anywhere, do you find the word of God uh, taught in that way. In the book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, everything is worship. You remember how we found everything was worship? All the way through it led up to worship. In the book of Esther, you will not find the word worship, nor will you find an act of worship anywhere in the whole book. In the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will find that the thing they stressed all the time was separation for witness. If there's going to be any real witness, there's got to be separation. Now here we're getting to the heart of it. In Ezra and Nehemiah, look at the pains of the prophets. Look at the pains that Ezra took. Look at the pains that Nehemiah took, even the plucking people's hair out, uh, and so on, uh, to ensure separation. Everything depended upon separation. Clearly defined. Clearly distinct from everything around. Yet, what do we find in the book of Esther? There's no such thing as separation. Indeed, we find the exact opposite. We find these people are moving right into things. 
and seemingly the Lord's leading me. You see, Esther could never have been in that palace for those years, for those years, and 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 not it not have been known that she was a Jewess if she hadn't broken every known law of Scripture. Do you realize that? I mean, I, I perhaps I don't think it embarrasses you, but there are all kinds of things, laws, particularly over uh, a person like Esther, uh, that that she would have had to have kept if she was obeying the law. She couldn't do it without it being known. But no one knew. You see, it was only when she got Haman, the king's favourite, and the king, the second night running into that banquet, that she suddenly said, he said, what is thy petition? So he read the dream, and she said, well, I and my people are sold to be destroyed. He never knew when he made that, that decree that she was a jewel. Yet there she was, she didn't eat him. One thing that divided Jew and Gentile were the laws over food. Irrevocably divided them. You see? Now here we've got Ezra and Nehemiah dividing everyone. See? Dividing everyone from all these other things. On the other side, we've got the Lord using someone who's hopeless, hopelessly mixed up, and the Lord seems to be blessing them. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we've got all poor Ezra and Nehemiah's energies bent on one thing divorcing foreign wives and getting rid of foreign children. In Esther, we've got all the energies of Mordecai and the Lord bringing Esther into marriage with a Gentile king like Sergeant. Now I think if Christian people were to just sit down and reflect for a few moments, they would find that they would have a key to a whole lot of situation in the book of Esther. This lovely little story we all love at Sunday school. And we should find it's got everything we want in it. All, a bunch of keys to the 20th century situation. Okay. What a remarkable thing it really all is. Now I'm going to tell you something else I think that might shock you. Do you know what the name of Esther means? No doubt some of you know. It means a star. Do you know that that name is a foreign Gentile name? And do you know what it really was the equivalent of? It was the equivalent of a, of Venus. And really, it commonly, popularly meant good luck. I'm sorry to shock you. You've always had such high ideas about Esther. But that was what the meaning of her name was. Her Hebrew name meant birth. But her Persian name meant just what we know today by the name Venus. Good fortune, good luck. Commonly appealed to in that sense. Well, what a mix up it all is, really. And when you get down to glass caps in the story and cut out all the sentimental sweetness of blossoms surrounding it, what an amazing picture is presented to us. A child of God part of the Persian harmony, married to a Persian Gentile despot, a proud, arrogant, self-filled, wanton man, in an atmosphere which was entirely human. That's what we've got in this story. Now, it's all the more remarkable because in all the Jewish homes of the dispersion, we found we find some rather remarkable things. For instance, gradually idolatry was being forbidden in the Jewish homes of the dispersion. So was intermarriage, it was being frowned upon. And the law of God, though not understood, was held in great respect. Which is all the more remarkable. Esther draws a veil over that. But in actual fact, those things were happening amongst the people of God. So there is a meaning why the Holy Spirit has put the book of Esther in its present form into our hands. Because it's not absolutely true representation of every Jewish family in the dispersion. Many of them were good people, many of them were devout people, but they were not prepared for the wrench of leaving for the promised land. See? They wanted to have, as it were, their spirituality on that ground. They wanted to have their salvation on that ground. They wanted to have their experience and blessings of the Lord on that ground. You see? 
They wanted to remain on that ground, but have the Lord. You know, it's most interesting if you really, really do look, up, uh, look upon it uh, carefully and uh, in the right way, you will see straight away that with all this devotion to the Lord, they remained on ground where God's house could never be built, where God's purpose could never be realized, and where God's Christ could never be brought in. Now, you and I would immediately say, well, 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 the Lord must leave us. <clears throat> That's quite definite. The Lord must cut himself off from it. If they're going to stay on ground, where God's house can't be built, where God can't really be satisfied, where God's purpose can never be realized, and where God's Christ can never be brought in, then God should have nothing to do with it. But that's just the point of the book of Esther. That's just the point of the book of Esther. And that is the corrective that we need against this natural narrowness of the wrong power that we have. Those children of God, the vast majority of the people of God, remained on that ground. The Lord never took his salvation from them. Not only did the Lord not take his salvation from them, but he developed his salvation. If they didn't want to be where the house of God could be built, if they didn't want to be where the purpose of Christ could be realized, if they didn't want to be where the Christ of God could be brought in all right, they would lose that. They would lose it. But they would never lose their salvation. They were still born people of God, and God would stand with them to the hilt because they were born of him. Do you see? They were born of the seed of Abraham. He was with them. Absolutely with them. Now then, it's in that atmosphere that the story of Esther takes place. And here we're coming to the key. Everywhere you turn, you will find the hidden sovereignty of God towards his people, wherever they are. The hidden sovereignty of God working for his people. Not so much in them, working for them. Everywhere you look in the book of Esther, the Lord's working for them. Everywhere, doesn't matter where you turn, the Lord's working for them. It's the most wonderful thing, in spite of their location, in spite of their ignorance, in spite of their compromise, in spite of the fact that they're not prepared to abandon themselves to the Lord, the Lord's working for them. Oh, how that explains so much in Christendom today. Wherever you find a child of God, the Lord's there as he can be. The Lord finds himself in the most remarkable places for some of the men. For some of the men. Places that you and I would just put right outside of the pale, but the Lord is there for them because they're born of him in the most remarkable way. And furthermore, he will give the most remarkable experience the most remarkable experience. I remember once, and I must be careful because I want to move on to the last point. I remember once when I was in Egypt, hearing the thing that I just could not leave, up in Upper Egypt, amongst the Copts, who were anything but what we could call born-again believers, anything but born-again believers. I heard of an old aged woman, seen by two friends of mine who were most active in their discernment who at times when she came under, and it was most definitely according to the mature and aged judgment of these friends, she came under the Holy Spirit in the most remarkable way so that blood appeared upon her hands. And when that happened, she was able to heal anyone. And the most remarkable instances of healing and salvation had been recorded all over the place uh, there in Aparit. How could you explain that? We can either say it's the devil, or we can say it's the devil. That woman was a born-again believer. She was mixed up in the most unbelievable setup you could ever wish to see. I know those of you who know anything about the Coptic setup could know what on earth I'm talking about. Never have I seen any setup quite like that. Uh, but there you are. Uh, it's there, and sometimes you'll find the Lord in the most remarkable places. So you could go on recounting instance after instance after instance after instance of places where you wouldn't expect to find the Lord working for his people, and there he's working for his people. Blessing them, coming down to their level, 
finding them on their level, expressing himself to them on their level, doing the most unbelievable things toward them and for them. And yet, and yet, we have to say that just when it stops, it goes away. Now here you've got it all in the book of Esther. I think this is almost clearly seen in the hidden way in which we find the name of God in the book of Esther. Now, um, I've drawn it up here on the board. I'm afraid I was rather tired and rushed, so it's not done very beautifully. But um, I hope that it will be to all of you a, a real um, blessing in some ways to understand something of the of the fascinating nature, really, of true Bible study. You see, people have said for years and years and years that the name of God could, the name of God was never mentioned in the book of Esther. You could never find it until a man called Bullinger, some years ago, uh, discovered in research into the writings of the rabbis that, in actual fact, the name of the Lord occurred four times in acrostic form in the book of Esther. The acrostic form simply means by uh, the first letter of each word of the sentence being one letter of the name of the Lord. Jehovah. Jehovah. So you find that um, in the book of Esther four times, each point at the point of crisis, each point at the point of crisis, in the story, you will find the name of the Lord. You'll find it first uh, in Esther 1.20, then in Esther 5.4, then in Esther 5.13, and then in Esther 7, verse 7. In each case, um, you will find it uh, at, a, at um, a, most a most remarkable, in a most remarkable context. For instance, you will find that the first two are the initial letters of uh, the words of the sentence. In every single case, they are consecutive. In the first two instances, they are the initial letters of the first four Hebrew words, first four Hebrew words uh, of the sentence. And in the second two, they are the final letters of the first words. You will find that the first and the third are read backwards, and the second and the fourth are read forward. Now, it cannot be coincidence, uh, knowing how we have acrostic psalms and other, other, uh, other cases of this method, and of this strange uh, literary method, uh, it cannot be coincidence that in the book of Esther, at the four points of crisis in the story, the name of the Lord should appear in a hidden way. Now, Dr. Pearson, those of you who know Dr. Pearson's love of the scriptures, Dr. A.C. Pearson, has put them into couplet form. And I have put his thing, not don't bother about this for a moment, the, the first four, I put his couplet form of the authorised version uh, on, on the board. You see, due respect our ladies all shall give their husbands great and small. Esther 1. Now, isn't it interesting? That's the, that is the initial letter. And in each case that the initial letters are used, it is God initiating the deliverance of his people. In each case, the final letter to use, it is God uh, fulfilling the deliverance of his people. The, it's read backwards, the first one, L-O-R-C. Then the next one in Esther 5-4, let our royal dinner bring Haman feasting with the, with the king. And that is the word of Esther, when she uh, arranged for the king and Haman to come uh, two nights running uh, to that banquet so that uh, she could uh, uh, speak to the king uh, about the decree. The fourth time, uh, the third time, was the words of Haman, 
which were overruled by God. Do you remember his hatred when he saw Mordecai out the gate? And he went home and built those gallows, had those gallows built for him. The Lord overruled his hatred and the building of those gallows to his own destruction. Grand for no avail, I say, while the stewardship at the gate. And lastly, um, the words again of Haman, when he saw that his end had come, ill to fear decree, I find, towards me in the monarch's side. Now, you know, although I think A.G. Pearson, though it sounds rather funny in some ways, has done a marvel to so that those of you don't, those of us who don't understand Hebrew can understand uh, what exactly lies in this history. Uh, here, we've got, uh, uh, at least in some readable form, something akin to what the Holy Spirit has written in the book of Esther. So the name, not of God, but the name of Jehovah, the name of the Lord, appears four times, the chosen name of the Lord, the name by which he reveals his relationship to his people, comes four times in the 